The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, welcome, folks, as we continue in our summer teaching series. Now, you'll notice that this week, like last week, we're here in the back part of our Timber Bistro and Books. That's because our main auditorium, our sanctuary, is being completely refurbished over the summer. We got kicked out of there. If you'll remember, we announced that this year we had some generous donors who covered the cost of putting new carpet, new paint, and theater seats in our main auditorium. And the generosity of those donors, they insisted during the midst of this pandemic, yes, continue on with this. Let's do this. Let's get it done. So we are excited. When we all gather together, we're going to be gathering together in a brand new auditorium. So... Over the summer, we're happy to be doing our preaching and teaching here in Timber. Well, it was 1989, and I was in the market for a new vehicle, and I found one. It was a sleek, shiny, silver uh, Toyota Celica GTS. It was fast. It was fun. And it came fully equipped, including an owner's manual. Now, remember that. That's going to come in handy in just a moment. So I was driving this fun new sports car around and, uh, you know, getting places where I needed to get within the speed limit, but in a quick pace. I loved this car. It was fast. It was nimble. And one day as I was driving it, the oil light came on in the dashboard. I thought, oh, I need to check the oil in this car. But I got busy. I got doing things. One week passed two weeks passed. I really need to get some oil into this vehicle. I'll do that this afternoon. I'd forget. Three weeks passed, four weeks passed, five weeks passed, and then the engine passed. It died. The engine seized up on a highway one day and it was unable to be rebuilt. I lost thousands and thousands of dollars in that vehicle. Now, when people ask me, hey, Darren, why aren't you driving your Toyota anymore? I would tell them, because the engine blew. And they'd say, why did the engine blow? I said, because I ignored the owner's manual, I ignored the instructions, I ignored the engine light, and I didn't put oil in it. After I would tell them that, it usually kind of ended the conversation. Nobody said, well, you should complain to Toyota because everybody knew it was my own fault. That's what happens when you ignore the instructions. That's what you get when you don't follow the owner's manual. Well, today we're continuing in our summer You Asked For It series, the series where you choose the topics. And this uh, today, this morning, this afternoon, we're answering the question, should a Christian marry a non-Christian? Several of you wanted to know the answer to that question. Should a Christian, a Christ follower, marry a non-Christian, someone who isn't a Christ follower? Now, to answer this question, we're going to do what I should have done many years ago. We are going to consult the owner's manual. Now, Jesus believed that the scriptures were the inspired word of God. Jesus believed that the scriptures were authoritative in life. So we believe the same thing. So then, when it comes to today's question, what exactly did the writers of Scripture say over the years? Well, when you boil it all down, there are two requirements. There are essentially two boxes that every Christ follower must check in order to have a biblically endorsed marriage. And the first one is this. Marry a person of the opposite 
sex. Marry a person of the opposite sex. One day, Jesus got into a discussion with some religious leaders, and they were discussing God's design for marriage. The conversation is recorded in the 19th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus took them back to the very beginning. Quoting Genesis, Jesus said this, Haven't you read? At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Now, the terms male and female represent distinctions, differences within the human race. In Genesis chapter 2, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, God created the first human, a male named Adam. Now, at the time, Adam was the only human being living on the entire planet. And after viewing the rest of creation, Adam realized that there was still something missing in his world. The Bible puts it this way, Genesis 2.20, For Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, the word translated suitable from the original Hebrew language means opposite to or the other side of. It's the idea that there was no one around to complement Adam's life. And by complement, I don't mean there was no one around to tell Adam how handsome he was. I mean there was no one there to bring balance to Adam's life. There was no one on the other side of Adam. There was no teeter to his totter. So God created Eve, the first female of the species, an equal yet distinct partner. Someone equal to Adam, yet different enough to add value to his life. Someone who could bring to Adam's life something he couldn't get on his own. So God created humanity as male and female, two equal yet distinct sexes, two equal yet distinct genders. And God placed some aspects of his nature to a greater degree in the male, and other aspects of his nature to a greater degree in the female. Now, over the centuries, an entire industry has been, to, has been built around these distinctions. Entire university courses have been created to somehow explain and explore these distinctions. Males and females have spent centuries trying to understand each other, and they've been spending centuries making jokes about each other as well. Let me give you just a couple examples. For example, there was an advertisement in a magazine, brains for sale. A man's brain, $500,000. A woman's brain, $100,000. Someone called in and said, why the difference? Why is a woman's brain so much cheaper than a man's brain? And the person responded, that's because the woman's brain has actually been used. Well. Two men were speaking one day, and the one man says, You know, I haven't spoken to my wife in 18 months. And the other guy says, You haven't spoken to your wife in 18 months? Why? And the first guy says, I didn't want to interrupt her. Perhaps nothing represents the differences between men and women more than the story of the English professor who wrote the following words on the board. We're going to put these words on the screen right now. This is what he wrote on the board. Woman without her man is nothing. Those are the words he wrote on the board. And then he said to his class, All right, ladies and gentlemen, you punctuate this sentence. Now, the men punctuated it this way. Woman without her man is nothing.
And the women punctuated it this way. Woman, without her, man is nothing. It's undeniable. There are clear distinctions between the male and female of the human species. And the most obvious distinction would have to be the biological distinction. Human reproduction requires a distinct contribution from each of the sexes. When each brings their distinct biological contribution together, human reproduction can then occur. And it's all according to God's design. That's what Jesus was alluding to in the second part of his observation about God's design for marriage from Genesis. Jesus said, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. If a Christ follower wants to marry, they are to marry a person of the opposite sex, a male, marry a female, a man, and his wife. Why? As your outline says, because this reflects and respects God's design for a balanced relationship and biological reproduction. For a balanced relationship and for biological reproduction. That is God's design. And that is Jesus' declaration. It's God's design as described in Genesis, and it's God's design as affirmed and attested to by Jesus. Following Jesus means believing what Jesus believed and teaching what Jesus taught. And when it comes to marriage, Jesus believed and taught that at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female, and a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, that's the first biblical requirement. Marry a person of the opposite sex. And the second one is, marry a person of the same faith. So marry a person of the opposite sex, and marry a person of the same faith. Now, apart from not marrying certain family members, that pretty well sums it up when it comes to who a Christ follower can marry. It's really that simple. So where exactly does the Bible teach that a Christ follower has to marry someone of the same faith? Well, 2,000 years ago, some Christ followers wrote a letter to a leader in the early church. His name was Paul. And they asked him some questions about marriage. Part of Paul's response is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 39. It's on your outlines, it's in your, uh, it'll be on the screen as well. Paul writes this, he said, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now let's pause there for a moment. This phrase is kind of short form for a whole bunch of teaching in the Bible. By the way, it could easily also be written that a man is bound to his wife as long as she lives. It's applicable to both. But what's with this word bound? Well, it's a legal term. You see, God takes the marriage contract very seriously. That's because God designed the family to be the foundation of society. So Paul's reminding the people that spouses are legally bound, they're legally tied to one another for life. Now, exceptions are certainly made due to the impact of sin upon relationships, and we'll be talking about that in a series this fall. But God's design, God's ultimate goal, God's preferred outcome is one man, one woman, in a lifelong commitment. 
So that's what this first line is declaring. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But keep reading. He says, but if her husband dies, she is free to remarry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Whoa, did you hear that? Did you hear what Paul just declared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The woman is free to marry anyone she wishes, anyone she chooses. Think about that. Think about what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, folks, it's open season. Paul is saying that you may like them tall or you may like them short. You may like their hair red or blonde or black or brunette or blue. Who knows? You may even like them bald. Who knows? It's up to you. You may like them introverted or extroverted. You may like them athletic or pleasantly plump. You may like them studious. You may like them artistic. You may like them as homebodies or as world travelers. It really doesn't matter. You are free to marry anyone you wish, anyone you choose. After examining a man who had been rushed to the emergency room, the doctor took the man's wife aside and he said, Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but I don't like the looks of your husband. And the woman looks at the doctor and says, I don't like how he looks either, Doc, but he's a great provider and he's really good with the kids. Paul is saying, hey, you can do that. You can pick and choose which qualities are important to you. Maybe looks aren't as important to you. No problem. That's fine. As long as the person shares with you the same faith in Jesus Christ. You are free to marry anyone you wish, but they must belong to the Lord. Now, in a second letter to the same church, Paul came at this from another angle. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, he said, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, what does the word yoked mean? And what do eggs have to do with marriage? Well, this verse has nothing to do with eggs. Paul isn't talking about an egg yolk. He's talking about a wooden yolk. It was a farm implement, still used today. A yoke is a wooden bar that was placed across the shoulders of two animals that were placed side by side, two working animals. It joined these two animals together as a team, enabling them to pull a heavy load together. Now, what a wise farmer does is never join together a tall animal with a short animal or a strong animal with a weaker animal. Why? Well, to protect the animals and to maximize their productivity. That's why. You see, the weaker or shorter animal would walk more slowly than the stronger or taller animal, causing them to go in circles. And when animals are unequally yoked together, they can't properly perform the task set before them. So instead of working together, they're actually working at odds with one another. Think of it this way. Have you ever seen a three-legged race? A three-legged race is where you take two people and you put them side by side and you tie the right leg of the one person to the left leg of the other person and then they run a race with three legs, so to speak. Now, imagine tying the world's fastest woman together with the world's heaviest man. Now, if they were friends and it was for fun at some summer picnic, no big deal, go for it. But what about when the stakes are higher? What about when the fulfillment and contentment of each of them is dependent upon the outcome of that race? 
Or what about when the destiny of their children is tied to the outcome of that race? Suddenly, this isn't a harmless and a meaningless game. Suddenly, it matters whom you choose as your partner. Now, instead of a three-legged race, Paul is using a first-century farming example to illustrate the same principle. By the way, it should be noted here that Paul is not forbidding Christians from having friendships with non-Christians. Not at all. Paul is discouraging Christians from being in intimate partnerships with non-Christians. And there is no more intimate partnership than a marriage partnership. Remember, Jesus described it using the phrase from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. That word united in the Greek language is kaleo. It literally means to glue. A man will leave his father and mother, be glued to his wife, and they become one flesh. That is as intimate as you can get. Now, someone's out there, and I can hear you through the camera, and you're thinking to yourself, Darren, isn't this a bit intolerant? I mean, why is it such a big deal that you marry someone who believes what you believe? Isn't having a spouse with a different take on faith like having a spouse with a different taste in food? Why is this such a big deal? My brother-in-law rides his motorcycle to work quite a bit, and I once asked him how dangerous motorcycles really are. I said, listen, wouldn't it take just a small rock or object to wipe you out when you're traveling 100 uh, kilometers an hour on a highway? His response was incredibly insightful. He said, yeah, it's true. He said, it doesn't take much to throw you off balance at that high speed. So he said, the key to avoiding objects on the road is to look away from them when you see them. Look away from them when you see them. He said, if you focus upon the object that you want to avoid, you will actually subconsciously, instinctively drive towards that object. It's how our brains are wired. If you look at an object, you will find yourself steering towards that object. So look away. When he told me that, I immediately saw that this was more than a steering advice. This was a life principle. You move towards the object that you're focused upon. It's true of what's on our highways, and it's true of what's in our hearts. Where you focus in life determines what you will value in life. Where you focus determines the activities that you will deem to be worthy of your time, your talents, and your treasures. In the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, which is like a book filled with wise bumper stickers, Proverbs 4.23 puts it this way, Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Now, the author isn't talking about the physical organ in your chest. He's talking about your soul. He's talking about your center of your affection and your, and your will. Above all else, guard your heart. Guard the, the source of decisions in your life. Why? Because it's the wellspring of life. That's where, out of which you, your heart is the source of all of your decisions, all of your desires, the direction of your life. So when you take two people who don't share the similar faith in their hearts and you tie those two people together, they are pre-wired for trouble at their very core. 
So Paul is saying, in the most important and intimate relationships of your life, you should not be tying yourself to someone who doesn't value what you value. This is the reason why the biblical writers put a do not enter sign on such arrangements. A biblically endorsed marriage is to a person of the same faith. This isn't being intolerant. This is being wise. This is being practical, folks. This is trying to spare you, spare your spouse, spare your children, a lifetime of regret and pain and heartache and loneliness. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, I get the pain and the regret and the heartache, but loneliness, how does that come into play? Think with me for a moment. Let's try to imagine the best possible case scenario, meaning the best possible case scenario between a believer and an unbeliever in a marriage. So as a believer, you marry someone and your unbelieving spouse, this is best case scenario. They say, listen, I will never stop you from going to church. I will never stop you from practicing your faith. Yes, you can take our children to church with you. They will be the most affirming and encouraging unbelieving spouse imaginable in the whole universe. The best case scenario. Even in such an idealized condition, as a Christ follower, you will still have moments in your life when the absence of a like-minded spouse will haunt you. Even in the most idealized of circumstances, every week your life will be filled with tiny pinpricks of disappointment and loneliness. A thought will come to you. A thought tied to your faith. A thought you would love to share with your spouse, but you can't. And for each of those brief, tiny moments, you will feel alone. The Spirit will give you some insight into yourself or some situation or some passage of Scripture that you've just read. And you will long to share it with your spouse, but you'll hesitate. You can't tell them. They wouldn't understand. They couldn't relate, even though they might even try. And that, that same sense of being alone will be very real. A moment of trial and trauma comes upon you. A moment that you long to turn to your spouse and join together with them in prayer, but you can't. And that sense of being alone will once again rise up within you. And all of this will happen in the best case scenario of an unbelieving spouse Spouse who encourages you to live your faith. This is why tying two creatures together that are pulling in different directions or at least in different ways is a foolish and even a cruel thing to do. God's design and desire is that you would marry someone who shares with you the same faith. As your outline says, this reflects and respects God's desire for a peaceful and a productive union. Peace and productivity. That's what God wants for you. That's God's best for you. That's God's desire and design for a marriage. Now, now think in these terms. God's design for a marriage is that you grow closer as a couple by following Him as individuals. I'm going to say that again. God's design for a marriage is that you grow closer as a couple by following him as individuals. To give you a visual regarding how this works, I've placed a couple of diagrams on your outline. Okay, 
Look at option A in the diagram. You've got God at the top and you and your spouse. Option A is, the, is God's design for marriage. Two spouses who are both followers of Christ. Now notice the arrows. Put these arrows on your, on your outline. Both from you and your spouse, they're pointing towards God. Notice something. As you move towards God, you get closer together. As individuals, as you follow Christ individually, you grow closer together as a couple. That's God's design for marriage. But I've also given you on your outline option B. Option B displays the dynamic taking place in every marriage between two people who do not share the same faith in Christ. Now notice how the relational dynamic is different. Yes, you as a follower of Jesus, that arrow towards God, you are following Christ. But notice, your spouse, there is no arrow towards God. They have no relationship with God. They're not seeking to grow closer to God. What they're seeking to do is grow closer to you. And so you find, again, that your uh, affections are divided in a real way. You're, you're almost feeling a competition. Your spouse will feel, hey, how come you're spending so much time in your faith and you're not spending as much time with me? So your affections will be divided. You'll have that sense of tension, that sense of competition as they're growing closer to you. See how the dynamic is completely different. Now, someone's watching today and you're thinking to yourself, well, Darren, what if it's too late? I mean, what if I've already married someone who isn't a Christian, who isn't a Christ follower? Or you say, Darren, what if I became a Christ follower after I got married, and now I find myself in a marriage with someone who doesn't share my faith? You say, listen, I feel bad for my unbelieving spouse. This isn't what they signed up for. I'm the one who's changed since we got married. You're saying, what, what should I do? The Apostle Paul addressed this scenario directly. Look what he advised. It's located in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's uh, starting at verse 12. It'll be on your screen as well. Paul wrote this. He said, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now he says something unique here that we'll explain. He says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What's that mean? We'll get to that in a second. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. He says, let them go. The brother or sister, the Christ follower, is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, as a follower of Jesus, you actually sanctify your unbelieving spouse. You sanctify your home. How is that? The Sanctify means set apart saying, because Christ lives in you, there's an overflow of God's presence from your life into the life of your unbelieving spouse and your children as well. He, he used the sort of the Jewish uh, ceremonial terminology of being unclean. Unclean meaning outside of God's presence. But he says, listen, your children are not outside of God's presence. They're holy. They're set apart because of Christ's presence in your life. 
He's, so he's saying, listen, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, let it be so. There's actually an overflow of the presence of God spilling over into their life and into the lives of your children because of your faith in Jesus. So if they're willing to live with you, don't you divorce them. But if they're determined to leave, don't try to stop them. Let them go. You're not bound in such a situation. So what should you do when you find yourself married to someone who is not uh, of the same faith as you? As a Christ follower, you are to honor them as best as you can. You are to love them with the purest love imaginable. You're to pray for them, knowing that your very presence in that home is focusing God's supernatural presence upon that home in a unique way. What should you do? You should love God, and you should love your spouse, and then you trust God with the rest. Well, let's conclude. Today we've done our best to answer the question, should a Christian marry a non-Christian? And to answer that question, we've turned to the owner's manual, to Scripture. And we learn that there are two essential requirements for a biblically endorsed marriage. Marry someone of the opposite sex and marry someone of the same faith. That's God's design. And that brings us to today's big idea where we summarize the teaching. Here it is. When you ignore instruction, you invite destruction. When you ignore instruction, you invite destruction. Don't make the mistake with your marriage that I made with my vehicle. Don't ignore instruction. When you do that, it never ends well. When you ignore instruction, you invite destruction. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're single and you want to get married, there's an entire world of options out there for you. Just find someone of the opposite sex who shares the same faith. But anything outside of that is rebellion. Anything outside of that is sin. Anything outside of that, and you are heading towards certain danger. So let's pray. God, I pray for every man and woman out there who's seeking your will, seeking your direction, seeking your guidance when it comes to marriage. God, the options sometimes seem so difficult and it, it, it's, we can feel so lonely and sometimes we can even feel desperate and think that maybe you've forgotten us and that there's no one out there for us. But I pray your peace upon the heart and mind of everyone out there who's seeking. I pray that you give them wisdom and that you bring into their life someone that can love them who loves you, someone that can honor them who honors you. So I pray your peace and discernment I pray your peace and power upon those perhaps who are following you or find themselves in a relationship with someone that doesn't love you. I pray that you give them the strength to do what is right, the strength to do what they know to be true, the strength to do what honors you, and you will honor them as they honor you. I pray for those right now who find themselves in a marriage with someone who doesn't follow you. I pray that you will help them to love their spouse with the purest love imaginable, that you'll help them to honor their spouse, and that you will work through that situation in Jesus' name. Maybe you're watching here and you're not yet a follower of Christ. Maybe your spouse is. Maybe you've been resisting. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're watching and you're not a follower of Jesus, 
and you've been contemplating this for a while, you've not been yet ready to make a decision. Let me say this to you. Please hear this. Ultimately, no other human being can bring fulfillment to your life. There is no such thing as a perfect spouse. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. And even in the best of marriages, there's still an emptiness that only God can fulfill. And Jesus came to fulfill that emptiness in your life. I encourage you to accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. Pray this with me. God, I don't understand everything, but I know the emptiness in my own heart. I know my own rebellion. And I choose to accept your gift of forgiveness that Jesus purchased for me by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. Come and live within my life. Change me from the inside out. Give me peace. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that with me, or if you'd like someone to pray with you about some other issue, text the number that's on your screen right now, and someone will connect with you and help you take the next step. Let me remind you as well that I'm doing a live Q&A on a Zoom platform at 1.15 today, 1.15 on Sunday, uh, Pacific time. So check out our website. It'll give you the link where you can join and you can ask questions live, any pushback or follow-up questions from our teaching today. God bless you. Next week, we continue in our You Ask For It series, and I'll be answering the question, how does healing work? How does all that work? And what, what about if I've been praying for healing and nothing's happening? We're going to be answering that question next week here at Broadway Church Online. God bless you, folks.